The Mentors If you listen you'll have fun Hope you're not the only one The Mentors Please subscribe and be our friend We would love you to the end The Yeah, that's uh, yeah. Now, okay, let's probably start the actual content of the podcast that our audience is so <laughs> patiently waiting for. You mean our audience doesn't want to hear our musical abilities? We might top the charts with this song, William. I don't know. Even though we are like the Jackson Five, the Jackson Two, the Jackson Two. Which two? Uh, I'm, I'm Janet. Michael. Okay, oh, that's weird. <laughs> okay, that Fine, was. You could be Janet. I mean, uh, you know, nip slip once in a while doesn't hurt nobody. Oh, you know what? I'll right. be Justin Timberlake. Oh, then you're gonna make me have the nip slip at the Super Bowl show? Is that yeah, girlfriend? Is that the role that you want to? All mm-hmm. right, uh, let's Don't move on. Be so quick to walk away. Vadim, <laughs> you are not JT, yeah, but, but did, did you hear that tenor, um, the falsetto? I did not. But listen, right. I think our listeners are gonna be excited about today's guest. It is Mortuza Kutub of F twenty two Labs, uh, and actually Mortuza started a dev shop in India of all places. Well, it's not of all places. He is from uh, India, and he decided to start this dev shop a couple of years ago after uh, leaving Fab Fab dot com. Um, he actually started off with a few of his friends, and now he has grown it to. 20 employees they have built apps like bj novak's app bj novak from the office uh called list app he actually is a founder of a startup most people don't know and mortuza's company actually built the app for them they've built a bunch of other apps he'll walk us through in this episode um what their process is for actually finding clients how people especially in america should vet dev shops especially if they're going to outsource how he was able to grow to 20 employees and actually charge the same rates as american web development shops and i think they specialize in mobile apps but they can build a lot of different things and i think for an for an outsourced development shop to be able to charge the same fees as american dev shops i think that's gonna be pretty interesting to hear mortuza's insight on how he was able to build this company from the ground up and this is a perfect example of an entrepreneur that really started with his own skill set with the domain expertise that he was able to develop um while working uh at fab.com and basically as a product guy and an engineer as you'll hear throughout the conversation but you know he wasn't thinking about oh how do i start some kind of innovative business and a new idea and invent the wheel no he already knew a model that worked but he put his own unique spin on it so you'll see exactly how he went about doing that in this episode please enjoy so uh mortuza uh we're obviously very curious about how you decided to start your dev shop and i know the path to that wasn't quite as linear as some people might uh assume but before we get into that um I know that you met your partner, well, you met your partner a long time ago, but you guys worked together uh, several times and you had a great work experience at Fab. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened in that organization? Because I think that uh, led to you ultimately starting your own company. So even before I joined Fab or even before Hari joined Fab, we always, the long-term vision was to always, you know, have a separate company, do, do, do something on our own, basically. That was the aim. Uh, the job was just a way to sort of fund our initial uh, company whatever way we are going to set it up and uh, you know we the reason I joined fab and then later I joined fab is uh, fab was one of the hardest startups uh, when we started off uh, you know it was into design e-commerce doing pretty great 
uh, and I wanted to learn the technologies that were used to build and fuel those kinds of startups because ultimately I had an ideas that I wanted to build myself. So I thought it was a good fit. It was a very small team when I joined, uh, around 50. By the time I left, it was 500. Uh, so I got to see a huge roller coaster ride. I got to, you know, face really stressful situations. Uh, went through a lot, you know, basically learned on someone else's expense. And uh, that's, I think that's one of the reasons we, we joined Fab. I love that you did that. And, you know, a lot of people uh, that are sort of innately entrepreneurs, they want to start their own company, they're yearning for it, and they don't want to get a real job, let's say, out of college or even when they're very young. But if you look at it from the perspective of, like you said, uh, learning on somebody else's dime, essentially getting paid to learn, it's actually a great opportunity because uh, it's a safe way to then, you know, essentially de-risk when you're actually going to start the company because you're going to be that much more informed and more likely to succeed. Yeah, couldn't agree with you more there. And one thing uh, that's, I think, important to note, though, too, is, uh, you know, you didn't just simply work at Fab as an engineer. You actually ended up doing a good enough job that you rose through the ranks there and actually ended up running a team. Tell us why, out of all the engineers that they had, because you said you started it was 50 people. uh, The company grew fairly quickly over that period of time. Why do you think, out of all the engineers that worked for the organization, uh, that you ended up being one of the ones that ended up managing a team? The reason I think for that would be, you know, the entrepreneurial mindset that you have is always to solve problems quickly without, you know, getting answers or getting directions on how actually you're going to solve a problem. So I think that was one of the major reasons because, you know, whenever we would get stuck or whenever there was a decision to be made, I was able to make that pretty quickly. Uh, Sometimes wrong, sometimes bad decisions, sometimes good decisions, but you've got to make decisions. You can't stay stuck at some point. Right. I think that is one thing. And Fab really promoted people to make decisions. You know, uh, one of their slow, their big push was make mistakes, right? So they were more than happy for people to make mistakes, but take the initiative, do something, right? Not not wait for instructions, not, uh, you know, stay back. So that is, I think, one of the major reasons. The other was, uh, you know, I've, I've been a product person, you know, from college days. Uh, I've used lots of products. I'm a heavy mobile app user. And uh, that sort of gave me insights. I don't know, probably that comes natural to me, like how products should be built and should not be built, you know, how features should be. I can sort of empathize from a consumer's point of view, which most engineers can't or don't. They sort of look at it always from the tech angle and how easy or hard something is to build. But I sort of try to look at things from how a consumer would, you know, experience the feature or experience the product. and even if you have to do a ton of work to just provide one small simple you know step i would push for that so i think that is one thing that uh the management team really liked and they sort of felt that uh you know probably this guy should be given a chance to do something more that's a great point you know a lot of uh engineers not even a lot but some engineers they for example just expect the business people to tell them what to do and then execute on it on the flip side the business people uh a lot of times ignorantly expect to just tell the engineer what to do and then magically uh it will be what they want and that's not how these things work you need to work together uh and sort of complement each other on whatever skills you have but actually understand sort of the depth that comes with uh, figuring out the product is from the customer's perspective and then also the actual technical work that goes into building it in order to come up with something successful. But it's great that you had the opportunity to work at a company that actually allowed you to make your own decisions and obviously experienced a lot of growth while you were there. So then when did you decide to actually start a company or to leave your job? What was the next step after Fab? 
Right. So uh, I was starting to get a little comfortable, a little too comfortable for my own liking at Fab. And uh, I had pretty much learned the stuff that I wanted to learn. Obviously, learning can never, you know, learning is a process that goes on forever. You can never, you know, say I've learned everything. But I felt I was at a point which was good enough for us to start off something. And I felt if I just get too comfortable here, I might probably never do that. You know, and I didn't want to do that. I've seen a lot of my friends and, you know, uh, relatives get too comfortable at the job and then never end up doing something on their own. And I didn't want to do that. Did you uh, have some sort of entrepreneurial background in your family? How, how did you even think that you could start something? Yeah, my dad, uh, my biggest inspiration. So he started his business right out of, actually, he dropped out of college to start his business. Uh, and, and his story is something that always inspires me. And, you know, we keep talking about him. Uh, a lot of these things happen a lot through luck. Initially, you always need that stroke of luck at the beginning for things to just get moving and then you never look back from there. So listening to his stories, how he started the problems he faced, especially in India where things aren't really easy, you know, to get licenses, to do anything, you know, even to get a telephone line, it takes 10, 15 years back in, wow. back in the 70s. And to go through all of that and establish a business, which is, you know, which was doing really well, uh, that that just drove me and I also wanted to be like him and do something like him. And so can you give us an idea, at least in modern day India, what it takes to actually start a business, get a business license? I mean, how much do you have to spend on that if you could somewhat translate it to, to American dollars or, or percentage of income that somebody might make that's an engineer in India? And also touch on, you know, is there a lot more bureaucracy? How much effort, how much time does it take? Things like that. No, it's pretty simple now to start a business. Uh, there isn't too much uh, bureaucracy or any problems this day. You know, like you can pretty easily set up uh, either an incorporated company or a, a partnership, which is what I have. Uh, it's just maybe a few hours. Uh, just get a lawyer or someone to, you know, write up the paperwork, submit it. Within a couple of days, your, your partnership is registered and you can start. Getting a bank account is really simple. You know, you don't have to wait in line for a phone number. You can just walk into a shop, get a SIM card. Nobody uses landline anymore. Hmm. Okay, great. So it sounds like um, obviously India saw the opportunity to let people start their own companies and improve their own economy. So they relaxed the rules there a little bit since the 70s, which is good to hear. Uh, so tell us about your thought process. You decided to leave your job at Fab because you were getting too comfortable. Did you already have a business in mind when you left? Did you actually build anything yet? Uh, no. Uh, I obviously, you know, being a techie, we always used to code things up on weekends, build small projects and small tools that were just for fun, nothing serious. Uh, but we didn't really have a product idea or we didn't really know what exactly we were going to do when we quit. Uh, but we thought we should quit, you know, otherwise uh, it's going to get really hard towards the end uh, or we might just never end up doing that. Hmm. So we, we just, we just quit. Uh, we sort of, looked at our experiences at FAB, what problems we faced while we were working there and tried to solve our own issues. Interesting. So what was the first problem that you decided to try solving as an actual potential right. business opportunity? Right. So towards the end, a lot of my time at FAB was spent interviewing engineers, you know, hiring the right talent. And what I realized was we were spending a lot of time or actually every company was spending a lot of time uh, giving questions to, you know, developers, candidates to solve. And a lot of those questions take a lot of time to to get to the point where you can actually make a decision if this person's good or not. So just to give you an example, Ruby on Rails is a, a web development framework, right? You can build backend systems in that. Now, if I was to test someone's depth in knowledge with Ruby on Rails, you know, I'd have to ask him to build an application, you know, which does something and which has these certain criteria. 
he would have to spend a lot of time setting up the environment, pushing it live. Uh, and then for me to check his code, I'll have to download it, make sure I set up my environment the way, you know, in case there are conflicting gem versions or library versions. So all of that was just a waste of everyone's time. And if you've got a really good candidate on the market, he's not going to stay there for long. And he's not going to want to spend four hours, six hours setting things up, you know, trying to solve the problem because until the second or third hour, he might not even get to actually solving the real problem that you've given him. So what we set out to build was something what is today known as Docker. Docker is a, it's valued at a multi-billion dollar startup right now. Uh, but essentially what it is, is... You're saying what you built is, is like Docker? No, what we wanted to build was Docker, okay. uh, which didn't exist at that point of time or existed, but we never knew about it in India. And it was still very, very early days for Docker itself here in the US. Uh, but today it's very widely known, widely used in developer communities as Docker. It allows you to quickly share code you know, without the other person having to set up his own versioning. It just packages everything as the same version and you can just start off uh, with what you want to do. So the way we were planning to use or build that tool was the HR team would just share that package that the other candidate would have to download and he just starts coding the feature that he needs to build to prove you know, his dev jobs instead of wasting a lot of time. And it's also easy to test and it's also easy to score candidates. So did you end up launching this product, getting clients? What happened with it? No, we, we got nowhere close to launching this product. Uh, we built a lot of... So the thing is, we were still very naive, uh, very much right behind the years. Uh, instead of building the core, which is the, the MVP that should have been built, we ended up building a lot of auxiliary features around it, which were nice to have and which we felt was something we needed to have before we launch. Uh, and, you know, that's a lot of different features like an applicant tracking system pushing to different job boards and all of that stuff takes a lot of time to build. And it was just me and my co-founder, Hari, just two of us trying to build. Uh, and we had like close to four, five, six months of savings uh, with us and we didn't really have that much time. So we started doing fundraising while the product was still being developed. Uh, fundraising didn't go well. Nobody obviously, you know, wanted to build or, or invest in something they didn't even see. Uh, we ran out of savings pretty quickly and hence we had to shut down that product. And later on, we found out that, hey, you know, there's something really big as Docker that now everyone's using, which is essentially the same thing. But most people at this point, you're running out of savings, you have a failed product that most people would go and try to get a job. What did you do? Well, I might have had to do the same thing <laughs> if things didn't work out differently. Uh, what was happening in the background with Fab at that time was it wasn't doing that well. Uh, and a lot of, uh, you know, uh, the executives were high level executives were leaving fab and starting off their own startups so and since i had worked with them and they knew me really well from my fab days uh, they all got in touch with us to build to be their deck team to build out their product and that's how we you know transitioned from being a product development you know doing our own product to uh, being an agency that does development for other startups gotcha so fab essentially became your first customer for your dev shop. People at Fab, yeah. And people at Fab that were building their own technologies yes. after. Okay. Interesting. And so at what rate did you then started, start getting projects and sort of how did you figure out how to grow from there? Was it asking for referrals? What was your strategy? Right. So we looked at this as a transition phase. You know, we never thought this would be what we would do or, you know, for I think three and a half years now, uh, we never really thought about it that way. We thought, okay, we're going to do this for some time build up our savings again and go back to solving the problem that we were initially set out to solve. Uh, but what happened is the products that we were building were taking off so well and were equally exciting to us. So we just felt, you know, it doesn't make sense to leave something that's doing so well and they're dependent on us for the technology. So I didn't really want to leave them hanging as well. 
So we sort of just kept growing the team based on the requirements of the startups initially that we were working with. Uh, and I never looked at, since I never looked at it as a business that I wanted to do. So we never looked at trying to do marketing and getting more customers or even asking our clients for word of mouth referrals. Uh, only only after, you know, maybe a year, that's when we realized, you know, this is going well and we could probably end up doing this for some time till we have enough savings that we can actually try products or we don't really have to do one or the other. You could probably do both these things. You know, if you've got a continuous stream of revenue coming in from services, you use that revenue to do products, then you have a lot more freedom. You don't have to go beg money for, you know, raising funds or anything like that. And how did you figure out what to charge those first couple of customers that were people you worked with before? Right. So, uh, good question. I just looked at a lot of different freelancing websites uh, and based on what I felt was reasonable based on my time. Uh, obviously, I charged a lot more than what uh, a normal Indian developer would charge because I wasn't just doing development. I was also doing product road mapping for them and being the product person, not just a developer. Now, so is that how you were essentially differentiating? Because obviously, at this point, and by the way, by the way, it's yet another reason why it makes sense to, you know, let's say get a job and build your network first is because they became your very first customers. Very true. Um, but at this point, you know, you're clearly working on a dev shop now. It's getting some traction. Um, but at some point, maybe you have to do marketing or at the very least figure out how to stand out from the noise because there's so many dev shops out there, India, the US, Belarus, Ukraine, you name it. Uh, what was sort of your idea around maybe uh, saying, okay, this is how we're different? I think our products spoke for themselves. We didn't really have to do any kind of paid marketing or we didn't even have to do any kind of outbound marketing. A lot of the stuff was we were getting inbound requests from uh, referrals that you know our clients were doing for us. They were doing intros for us. Uh, and that's how our business continued to grow. And anybody that you know randomly dropped on our site and wanted to work with us, we just had to show them one of the products we'd built and they'd be sold. There would be no requirement for us to pitch them or submit a proposal or anything of that sort. So the products just spoke for themselves. So you were you were building products at a different level and products that were recognizable, and I'm sure the Fab name helped a little bit in the beginning as well. Uh, very few people know that actually um, this gentleman named B.J. Novak, uh, who was one of the creators and actors in The Office, actually has a startup of his own now. It's a it's a list app. I think that's what it's called, List App, um, and. Your dev shop, F22 Labs, is actually the one that built that app. How did that come about? Right, so just a correction, List App is shut down right now. Okay. They've, they've, done, they've pivoted to something else, and we are not part of that startup. Uh, but how, so again, Devin, one of our ex-colleagues from Fab, uh, he was the chief product officer, and uh, he's a friend of BJ's, or I don't know how they're connected, but I guess a mutual friend connected them. And uh, they had this idea, you know, they were thinking about it for some time and they wanted to really build it out and uh, since I had known Devin and he'd known me and we worked together so that's how we just kicked it off. Interesting yeah and it's actually a good lesson to uh, to say that uh, even if you're a famous actor you decide to start a startup it doesn't mean it's going to be successful they didn't I assume didn't get the adoption they wanted to get which is why they had to pivot. Probably. Yeah. But yeah. they're still working on something right? BJ yeah. still wants to do his own company. Yeah. That's pretty cool. So uh, 
you know, a lot of our listeners are probably business people that have thought about starting an app before. I mean, you guys did this before you started your dev shop. Uh, Sergey and I have certainly uh, had a bunch of apps developed both through co-founders and also through outsourced teams. So clearly at this point, you have a lot of people that are coming to you, a lot of business people that need a technical resource and a technical team to help them out. What did you see as sort of um, problems that kind of kept on creeping up that were the same from founder to founder uh, and how did you help them solve it? Right. So uh, one of the biggest problems is if you've got a non-tech person, which is most likely the case, uh, they don't really understand how a requirement or what they really want is translated to uh, a feature that a customer would use and how it's built on the engineering side. So, you know, there was a lot of loss in translation happening, which is what I felt initially with our initial customers who didn't have that much experience with product. So one of the things that we ended up doing or we, we do now is we sort of do a roadmap session before we take on any projects where we you know spend a week two weeks helping them really understand or actually trying to understand what they're what they're trying to build or wanting to build and if the route that they're going is right to solve that problem or not or if there's another way or another feature or something else that they can do to improve the product that we will be building out so yeah i think the first couple of sessions is more like getting to know what they really want to solve instead of just taking down, okay, I want an app which does this, does this, does this, and building that. Uh, in the end, if no one's going to use that, it's useless for him, it's useless for us because I can't promote it or I can't you know, talk to anybody about that app. But what we now do is sit down with them, understand the problem, then come back with solutions. You know, It could match what they had in mind or it could be different from what they... Uh, had in mind initially convinced them that this is the way to go based on our experience of building products and stuff for so many other teams and then build that. Now, there there are so many um, web development shops, let's say, in India that someone in America could hire, uh, and even outside of India, I should say. So when people outsource development, what do you think is the biggest breakdown for them? And I know that you actually, uh, I read that you created a um, an outsourcing checklist for people to be able to uh, to actually evaluate a web development shop and whether they should work with them. And we're going to share that in the show notes, but can you share a little bit about what's included in that checklist and, and what should people think about as sort of the biggest um, biggest problems they might face when working with someone? Sure. There are, uh, you know, based on our last three and a half years being in this business and learning things from mistakes, there are 50 plus things that someone needs to consider before picking a team or at least needs to know that this is a factor that they need to consider. Uh, And the only two things that people consider when picking a dev team is cost and time to market, right? So, and they just pick uh, the lowest cost provider and whoever's going to get them fastest if there's a time crunch and they start with that. And that's usually a wrong approach. Uh, So the things that we did or the things that are included in the checklist is one of the things I talked about, which is road mapping or really understanding what the problem is, what they want to build and what should be built. Uh, If a team is... Uh, trying to do that kind of an approach where they're not just willing to you know take whatever is handed down to them as a scope of work and start building right away that's a good team because they are actually trying to solve your problem and that's also a good team to be a partner with in the long run rather than just getting an MVP out and saying goodbye uh, the other things are does this team have a good process uh, is it process oriented or is it going to be a chaotic thing because if you're working uh, remotely there's a time difference, right? And how are they going to manage this time difference? Do they have a process to do that? 
um, who ex what kind of transparency am I going to get when working with a team? Most teams, the only person you're in, you're in contact with is a salesperson or just the product manager. Uh, again, the product manager or the project manager might not be a tech person, right? And it can be, they will always be lost in translations when you're trying to tell him something and he's trying to project that to the team. And then the stuff that gets out is not what you wanted or slightly different. So all of these things can be avoided. The way we do it is we have complete transparency. We set up Skype groups or Slack groups where every single developer that is working on the project, whether it's for you know two weeks or the entire duration, he's on that channel or on that group and you can directly talk to anybody that you want. So we just wanted to be completely transparent with who's gonna work, uh, what exactly they're gonna do, how long they've been with us, what projects they've worked at our company, what their experience level is. And I've not seen any company do this, be this transparent with their customers. Mm, that's true, actually. A lot of times when you work with an outsourced company, and I've had that happen at bigger companies I worked at, you're just le working with one project manager. You have no idea who's actually touching the product. And it really slows communication because they have to talk to somebody on their end and then things get lost in translation. I think your your old map mapping process is um, does another thing. The transparency you mentioned is, is huge. And understanding whether the team that you hire that is going to be transparent with you is really important. People don't really realize that. But during that week or two week process or however long the road mapping takes, you actually get to test what the communication style is with that team. And essentially you get to see what it's going to be like to work with them. And communication is so important, especially if you're working with an offshore team. So I think that's huge. And I want to mention really quickly, too, um, that you, you have actually great communication savvy because uh, I can tell you build relationships well with clients. Murtuza and Hari are actually here in the United States um, to meet with a, with a bunch of their existing clients and new ones as well. But Murtuza actually initially uh, added me on LinkedIn last summer um, and he seemed like a like a ambitious guy. So I, I usually confirm people that are ambitious or they maybe write me custom notes instead of just adding me on LinkedIn. And you didn't sell me anything. You sort of just said, I want to build relationships with people like you. And uh, I think a few months passed and you sent me a message just asking me about what I'm up to. You mentioned that you noticed my podcast and you were curious about that. And, and so that was a, a really warm way to build a relationship. And it seems like um, it seems like that's how you go about building relationships with anybody, right? Right. I mean, <clears throat> I'm looking at it from a from a long term. Uh, it, it's a long term vision, right? You're not most people today are using different platforms, whether it's uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, or even you know networking and physical meetings, where they straight up walk to you and say, "Hey, I'm doing this, blah blah blah. I need this." So the ultimate thing is they're trying to sell you something, uh, and I don't really like that. It turns me off when someone just walks up to me and starts selling something without even trying to know if I need that or if I have a problem or just even before getting to know me. So I, I try not to be that person and I try to be uh, much more social, much more warm, uh, you know, regardless of whether we did this podcast or not, it would, it, I just felt it was really nice to be in touch with you. I liked the work that you were doing and I was just appreciative of that. So that's, that's why I reached out. Yeah. And now we've built this organic relationship and obviously knowing the process that you guys have, we agree with. Uh, and if we meet somebody that says, hey, we need an outsourced team, we'll know to go to you first because we actually know you and we, we've developed this relationship. But you essentially stumbled into this company that you didn't even realize was going to be a business. I mean, yeah, it was side work that you were doing until you maybe would go back to doing your own product or whatever it is you actually want to do. And clearly, it got enough pull. You realized, I actually enjoy doing this because I'm working on these different projects and I want to continue to support these clients. So now you've been doing it for three and a half, four years, right? Um, 
Tell us a little bit about the specifics. So what's the average size of the deal that you guys bring on, the types of customers, and then also where do you guys go from here? What's what's the future for F22 Labs? Right. So the average deal size, you know, it varies, but I can say the minimum and probably the max. Uh, we don't pick up projects that are under $10,000. Uh, we we don't have a maximum. We are happy, you know, as long as people want to pay us as much money as possible. Uh, but what's, what's been the biggest uh, contract that you've gotten? Yeah, I think it's been close to 350k. Mm, so okay. between 10 and 350k, or we are happy to do more than 350k as well if you have the money to give it to us. If you want to do a half a million proje- dollar <laughs> project, especially if you're government, because <laughs> they tend to waste a lot of money on uh, on tech stuff, uh, reach out to F22. How, how big is your team now? It's 22 folks. 22 people. And that that $350,000 project, um, how long did it take you to close that deal? And then once you got the deal, how long did it take to build out that technology? Uh, that deal didn't take that long to close, I would say a month or less than a month. Uh, and what is the other question? And uh, how long did it take to actually deliver the, the technology that you were hired to do? Right. Uh, I think between one to one and a half years. It was a gradual process. So we kept, you know, releasing bills every two weeks. Mm. And how many, I'm curious, how many stakeholders were involved in that deal? So how many people did you have to pitch to, to actually get it closed? Just two. Yeah. And they, did they come to you? How did it, how did it close so quickly? Usually $350,000 could take even six months or a year to close. It never started off as a $350,000 deal. It started off as a monthly retainer and it ended up being a $350,000 deal. So they found you. Is that how it happened? Yes. So we heard that now you guys are not only doing, uh, you know, building products and and doing the development side of things, but you're doing marketing, right? Yeah, we're doing digital marketing. uh, And something that I'm really excited about is the growth hacking that we're doing organic growth hacking for our customers. So how did you develop an expertise there? Did you hire people? Did you already know how to do some of the stuff yourself? We were actually, you know, so we were trying to get more business for ourselves. We just started out doing you know, outbound where I'm reaching out to people, building relationships, you know, getting customers. Uh, we figured out that the way we were doing was very different from what most companies do, which is, you know, waste a lot of money on Google ads and Facebook ads. Uh, and whatever we learned from doing our own advertising and marketing, we sort of use those best practices for our clients as well. And that, that's just what. So what can you share then with some of the audience right now? They have maybe even a prototype uh, or something that they build. They want to get some customers for it, or even just some users. What's like the first or second and or second thing that you would do from a growth marketing perspective? Sure. Uh, never probably have. Uh, the first step would never be doing paid marketing. Uh, it always has to be organic at first because that just validates that your product is good enough that people want to share it with other people and, you know, pitch it to other people. Uh, the one thing, for example, the product that I showed you guys right now, uh, Herbie that we're building, what we did is we went to this, uh, the Cannabis Cup High Times event that was happening in San Bernardino last week. Uh, and we pitched it to people who were there because that was our audience. So we went to an event where we knew thousands of our prospective users are gonna be there we just stood there talked to people gave them our phone asked them to test out the app and we got valuable feedback from them and some people loved it some people gave us really good feedback and you know that's how we're going to continue to grow and then now for some of the growth hacking services that you guys do is a lot of it content and social media and sort of the the standard things that you would get from sort of the inbound marketing uh, people yeah what would you say is your most successful channel i know you do a lot of work on linkedin you get a lot of engagement there is right. that your best channel uh, for us for f22 labs in itself yes linkedin is one of our best channels uh, for a lot of, it depends if it's an e-commerce client facebook is really well facebook instagram re- works really well so for example 
uh, one of our clients that we are working with uh, is a jewelry store and it's an online jewelry store and you know we just closed i think we are closing april at around $3500 in ad spend on facebook and we're probably going to get 30000 in sales that that's going to happen through those ads oh. and so that came just uh, through facebook ads or what did you do on facebook Facebook ads, okay. nothing, nothing organic, just paid ads on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And, you know, sometimes it does make sense to invest in advertising if the amount of money you put in is less than the amount of money that you make. Uh, you know, so uh, if the cost per lead is low enough, then it does make sense. You have Definitely. to evaluate it. Uh, this was really fantastic, actually. I'm excited that you got to share a lot of this with our audience because we do have a lot of people that work on early stage products, and I think we just gave them a lot of tools to start with, you know, how to find a team, how to put together a product, especially if you want to build a tech business, how to do the initial marketing, um, and also how to develop an expertise if you're coming into it completely blindly. And I think a big takeaway from this episode for me is that, um, you know, we talked about this with Max Alshuler from Sales Hacker um, last week, is that... It's difficult to plan and premeditate a lot of these things. The first thing you did is built an expertise in building products that users want to use, and you had the product speak for themselves, and that way you were able to attract uh, customers to your own business and grow from there. And of course, now, it doesn't happen by accident. You do do proactive sales. You spend a lot of time building relationships by going to in-person events, by working on developing your LinkedIn network that works really well for you. Uh, But then still, the product's and products that you build for your customers really do speak for themselves, which is why you're able to ha- uh, charge higher rates than I think most development shops in India. Murtuza Kutub of F22 Labs, it was great to speak with you. Thanks so much for coming to our studio here in New York, and we're excited to share this episode. Thanks for